Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snicked along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today's going to be kind of like a Mutant Monday, kind of X-Men, X-Wednesday hybrid. We have so many amazing X titles in the last couple of weeks, and not as many magic books as we normally would on our docket. So instead, today is going to be kind of like a Mutant Monday spillover episode, where we're going to take a look at the final issue of X-Death of Wolverine. That's X-Death number five. Now, this is their first of several pieces of coverage closing out the multi-part series, which spanned two miniseries and an Infinity comic. So, of course, there's a lot to talk about with unpacking so many of the franchise-changing revelations that came there. And after that, we're going to be taking a look at another finale and another miniseries that ties into another bigger event with Devil's Reign X-Men number three. But kicking things off first is this coverage of X-Deaths of Wolverine. And, you know, Whether or not this was what everybody saw coming for Moira, it really is so connected to the ideas of House and Powers and then Inferno. And in that regard, this series really did bring a lot of storylines that were introduced several years ago to their next step. And it's certainly a title that we will be discussing for a long time to come. And we hope you guys enjoy our coverage of it. And if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to give us a follow over on Twitter at X's for Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Extra Podcast where we talk about mutants, magic, and Marvel week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at AOA on Twitter and Instagram, that's AOA on Twitter and Instagram where I'm going to be talking about everything Snickmas, and Snickmas is here to stay. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. What's up, everyone? I'm Jake. You can find me over on Twitter, planning the downfall of Krakoa at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. I'm Josh Will. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel and at AsleepAtTheWheel.com. And for the next two years, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, W-E-I-L, the number four U.S. Senate, and at JoshWheel.org. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P E A K. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike Sean, who is skinned alive for Moira to travel through a gate, and that might not have happened in this issue, but I'm not over this happening and the weird body horror that went through this entire series. <laughs> and I guess that means we're talking about X Death Wolverine number five, and we're doing a wrap up on the whole series. So that's a perfect place to start going into this issue. I know I've been kind of like, oh, what the fuck is this story? Like, why does this need to be taking over the whole X line? Like, what is going on with all of this? Where were all of y'all at with this? 
I didn't reach that point until the end. Having closed the final page of X Deaths of Wolverine 5, I was like, what the fuck was this story? Why did we need this? Why was this taking over the X line? I think I guess maybe I was just a little more optimistic or had a little more promise through it. But the heavy handed globbing together of X Lives and X Death in like the last two pages of X Lives 5 into the start of this one, it was a groaner and an eye roll for me where so many of these stories have dovetailed nicely. And this one was so mashed together, like back in that really great X-Force issue where Forge was smushing together the two halves of Wolverine so they would heal. It was X-Lives and X-Deaths were smushed together like that, but it wasn't as cool. Yeah, I started to pick up on how these two series were dovetailing about like the third issue of each because the real through line here is that Wolverine is traveling through time, right? Like in X-Lives, he's traveling back in time. In X-Deaths, he's traveled back from the future. That's kind of like the only real connection between these two. Otherwise, it's two separate plots that both don't actually wrap up here but just kind of change i can see deaths as the vehicle for getting moira from nuanced character to flat villain not my favorite transformation at all and last issue was one of my least favorite issues of x-men comics i've read in like years at this point honestly I love the way you put that. So this was the vehicle that transitioned character from A to B. And like, all right, maybe it wasn't pretty, but like it did that specific job. But like, I don't like that job. Like, that's not a job I'm happy about. Did not like that job in the slightest. I think it was poor. I think it happened way too quickly to be believable. And it happened in such a way that was like very paint by numbers, making a person a villain with very little real motivation or drive to do so beyond like escalating constantly. And that's kind of what I feel like Percy's X-Force has been about is just rampant escalation. And we've gotten to a point where we need a little bit more of a payoff than just like in five issues, turning somebody from a nuanced villain to a complete cartoon. Yeah. For 16 years, I feel like people have been trying to recreate this in comics and in comic events because in Infinite Crisis on DC, Jeff Johns did it fucking masterfully with Superboy Prime. And over the course of essentially about like, you know, five, six issues or so, he went from like, we have this general idea of him as a hero to, oh my God, unbelievable villain that can loom as the threat in the future at any time. And I feel like we've seen people try to be like, okay, I'm going to take care character and make that and at the end like you'll get that page of them knowing that like they're still around and they're going to be a major threat in the future and it, it has never stuck as well as it did that first time like Moira 10 is not Superboy Prime. I have trouble understanding what her motivations are at all. Is it just to survive? Was all of this building out of the mutant nation to ensure her survival? Like what is the point that she's trying to get to? With Hoxpox it felt like she was trying to build the mutant nation and ensure survival for the people but it seems like one once that betrayal, what she perceived as a betrayal happened in Inferno, she was just like, you know, baby bathwater, done. It was such a sudden shift, and there wasn't a lot on the page that showed the shift. It seems like you had to really want to read this internal process, this internal conversion. It felt very rushed, felt very truncated, and it felt kind of unbelievable. They made interesting choices for Moira throughout this for her descent into villain. Personally, I don't really like, I really enjoyed Moira when she was first introduced, and she was, you know, 
just this human geneticist that really loved mutants and wanted to help. And then we got Hawksbox, and this made her this really important character that was doing so many different things. And it really like puts into perspective Moira's actions. And it feels like it gives like this new idea of like who this character is, and it gives her this value and like, oh my god, she's so central to mutants. We were explicitly sold the reintroduction of Moira McTaggart as the most important moment in X-Men history. Right? Absolutely. And then she gets into a spat with Mystique and suddenly all mutants hate her. She hates mutants. She has to destroy them. They can't survive because they were mean to her when it's, well, yeah, you pissed Mystique off because you kept her wife dead for longer than she probably should have been for no, like, actual justifiable reason. This descent from Moira from hero, from most important character in mutant and X history to now villain just feels weird because I don't understand why it needed to be Moira. I was telling Jake in the green room that if this exact story happened, but it was somebody else like Karima or some other character, I can buy it and maybe enjoy it. I can't in good conscience really enjoy and support this because it's Moira. My main question throughout all of 10 Lives and X Deaths has been why is it this person? Like, why does it have to be Wolverine at the end of this issue saving the day when Sage runs in with the Cerebro Sword? She's made the plan. She literally has the weapon to do it and could do it herself. Hands it off to Wolverine so he stabs. There's no reason that Wolverine had to be the guy who saved the day here other than that he was in the right place at the right time. Somebody gave him the tools and told him what to do with them and then he did it. Is Magneto not on the island right now? Because Magneto would have been like absolutely much more effective at stopping a adamantium phalanx agent. Warlock because I mean who knows better about phalanx than Warlock. Any number of mutants would have been better suited to this task but at the end of the day we have Beast sitting there and being like Logan is what we need because he's the best tool we got in the box like no he's not (laughs) all this series convinced me is that logan rather than developing his own agency and becoming a person who can like do things for himself is just become nothing more than the sharpest knife in a box he might be the best knife krakoa has but they also have nuclear weapons they also have like catapults trebuchets guns crossbows they have everything that they could possibly need siege engines (laughs) <laughs> it's something that I'd hoped we were getting away from with Krakoa, and I don't know. It's great to have a story about Wolverine. I rather enjoy Percy's take on Wolverine, but like this felt meandering. His thoughts seem contradictory to me throughout the series. Like he's often musing on like, oh, the past is painful, and I'd like to forget it, but oh, I need to remember the past because it's important for me to keep watch. But also, like I don't remember the past, but sometimes I do, and it just it feels like a lot of Wolverine just like getting high and navel gazing most of the time. <laughs> I think they just wanted to have something going while they gave the other books breathing room to catch up on stories and get their art out the door for a relaunch. And Percy had already had a definitive Wolverine story he wanted to tell. But ultimately, I feel like this was something slotted in for convenience. And as much as I love Percy's writing on Wolverine, I don't feel like this is a definitive Wolverine story. It doesn't tell me anything more about the character or history of Wolverine than we knew before. Even the excess of Wolverine is not about Wolverine. It's about fucking Moira McTaggart fighting with Mystique and Destiny. You know, it's something that's come up for me a lot looking at books like Phoenix Song Echo where you've got Wolverine on a number of covers never appearing or even like Women of Marvel where you have Storm on the cover and doesn't, you know, she doesn't appear at all. It's very frustrating and I think a little cynical to, you know, keep using these 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 characters that are so popular to bring people in and then tell a story that either has very little to do with what's been going on broadly in context, doesn't really fit within the scope of what's happening or they're just not even in there at all. This felt like 
like another like we are marketing to get your attention kind of thing. I could have seen at least X deaths entirely without Wolverine. If Inferno had continued into this and it had still been Hickman writing it, I think this would have been a better story. But they were so hell-bent on making this a Wolverine story that they just like really twisted it. Yeah. Even putting all that aside, I don't feel like this is a satisfying, successful a job at what it promises to do, right? It sets out to become the definitive Wolverine story, something that will forever nail down his character and history for us, his future. And I don't think it really does that. I don't know that it actually accomplishes that. It's a fun read sometimes, not all the time. It's gorgeous art throughout. It's an amazing showcase for Kassara, Vicentini, Lima, everybody who works on it. But ultimately, I don't feel like this does what we were sold on it doing, which is, I think, much more egregious than saying like, yes, it's another Wolverine story. You're talking about like what the purpose of this story and what we were told this was, and this is the definitive Wolverine story. And I I can't but help just agree that like, can you call this a Wolverine story? I fail to see how this is meant to specifically be the thing that writers and Marvel wants to point out and be like, you want to read Wolverine? You read this story. This is the Wolverine and Logan you need to read. And I would argue and say, no, because this has nothing to do with Logan. What is Logan's role specifically here that makes him the person that this has to be the story? What is his agency in this story? Absolutely none. None. Zero. He's a tool. Like we said it before, he is literally described as a tool for stabbing things. Obviously, Benjamin Percy is our writer for this one. So we have for issue five of Excess, we have Federico Vincenti as our artist. We have Dijon Lima as our color artist. So the art though let's talk about the art in this i would say for me it's been good art i have my own problems with the way moira is being drawn because she looks far too young to be a woman of 50 even with her you know hot girl turf makeover that she went very joe maddie yes she looks like boom boom does she does she's like a pink decided to try to have a makeover like that now i thought that the art in this book was beautiful i really liked the opening callback to the that hoxbox scene between moira and professor x at the fair with the birds and how she's like coming up to him bloody and is like fuck you charles that was honestly i think my favorite part of the issue i also really really loved when sage did whatever she did to the cerebro sword and i like her whole character design here too i usually am very like the yellow coat is jubilee's thing alone but i like that this is something that's been given to her as kind of a visual identifier for Percy's stuff. I thought that some of the artistic choices were really lovely. I do think Wolverine's skeleton phalanx was the visual kind of at times looked very threatening, but at other times, like I think it's on digital page 11, where he's just like standing there while Wolverine lectures him with a watch in his hand. It took away all of his threat and he just looks like a drogger from Skyrim. But overall, I thought this was a really pretty book, even though it, it did things that I vehemently disagree. With. I love that you brought up the Cerebro sword because that was honestly my favorite art in the issue. When Sage says, I've got other plans and she's looking at the sword, it's like Kirby Crackle, but instead yes. of circles, it's like black, white outlined ovals floating around it. I had that exact panel in my notes as well for, for one of my two favorite art panels in this issue. It's good. It's Kassara-esque in a way that is interesting for the non-Kassara book here. I really like Dijo Lima's colors. I've been enjoying that the whole time. The phalanx look is like really rad. Jake, you also brought up 
the Wolverine skeleton, the Omega Wolverine. And I got to say my one gripe with this is that even though he is a literal skeleton with no flesh on his body, the ears of his costume are somehow still directly <laughs> attached to his skull. And I, I couldn't stop laughing at that because there are there have been many times we've seen Wolverine reduced to skeleton and he's just a skeleton like with a round head. And this is like hilarious that they were just like, no, you have to you have to know this is still Wolverine. And this is equivalent to when like artists give skeletons boobs to tell you it's a lady skeleton. This was yes. him saying, this is Wolverine. <laughs> You called this pretty and beautiful. It was in a very grotesque way. There was a yeah. lot of grossness. There was a lot of body horror in this. And I think I kind of appreciated whether it's Moira cutting off her own arm. Wait, how many times did she do that in the series too? <laughs> My specific favorite piece of art from this is Logan, and maybe because he's naked, laying on Itsu's body, but it's Itsu when she's being controlled by Omega Red. There's something just about that page. I think it's in number three. Uh, that's really beautiful. It, it, like the way everything about it, I think, is so composed and beautifully made. I do love the visual throwback to that really classic story where you know Wolverine has the dream and he fights his skeleton to the death. So like the fight with Phalanx Wolverine and Wolverine really echoed and harkened back to that to me. The stage I've got other plans. The Moira full page flash kind of showing all her different lives. That just really had like wow art overall for both series. Like the art on X Lives is an A plus because it's just a showing off even if there aren't any sea monsters and but god the subtle nuances in the way he was like drawing the same characters and then having like the omega red influence on them like in the same scene and adjusting them and over and over again like it was so good i'd give this a bb plus for for x death because the that while I like the the Joe Mad influence, like, and I like looking at it and that it reminds me of this, like, uncanny X-Men, like, 320 to 340 era. Yep, exact, exactly that era. It does take me out a little from what is our kind of Pepe Larraz, R.B. Silva expectation of, like, the new Hawkpox world. The Omega Wolverine skeleton was something that it was, they clearly put so much work into blending multiple layers in terms of the the skeleton parts the wolverine like the black over inked wolverine parts the phalanx kind of like digitally inserted in over it but it was a to me it was more is less because there were just too many pages where it looked goofy there's one i'm looking at now where omega wolverine is fighting daken and in one two three in six panels of it he looked more goofy than scary in three of them because trying to give like facial like you said with like skeleton boobs trying give the facial emotions on top of the phalanx on top of the wolverine inks on top of the skeleton is just too much and so it to me some of these detracted from the art oh yeah definitely fair definitely fair on that um there's so much great stuff going on that like when you reread you're gonna like see in more detail like we were looking at the page where we show more was lives but like right before it on the page before it right after she's talking to charles and she like goes back and forth between her you know classic look and her you know turf gone wild look you know we've got this page where she's like you coward and like there's these beautiful little weird black specks all over the place so like there's a lot of great detail but there's there's some things that were kind of like now we got some vicentini crackle going on in that one too i like that mad prop to the strong guy in like the black vinyl skirt behind her on the opening page not strong guy as in guido carousella just like the carnival strong man yeah i'm glad that you could get some enjoyment out of the 
the opening scene here. I don't know. It's fun. I think the art is really kinetic and really fun throughout. Definitely the characterization is difficult for me in this issue. I wanted to talk a little bit about Beast. Towards the end of this issue, he's being his usual egotistical piece of shit self, literally talking <laughs> to Sage and being like, yep, Wolverine got the job done. It, only him. Nobody else. You did definitely didn't help, but... Hank McCoy is still a motherfucker. He's being written weirdly anti-intellectual these days, like the dumbing down of Beast. And I don't know what the fuck is up with that. Because there's the part where he says, in the end, Force wins, you know, like we have to have the sharpest knife. And that just sounds like nothing I think Beast would ever say. It doesn't feel like Beast from X-Force, like Percy's X-Force would say that. You know, like he's constantly being like, I am the mastermind. It is me, the, the conductor of this dark orchestra. You know, maybe Wolverine is the sharpest knife, but you have to have somebody to handle the knife. And I'm smart enough to handle a knife. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, I'm going to say Beast seems like he's smart enough to handle a knife and just about nothing else because he keeps saying things like, oh, yeah, you know, brute force. That's that's really where it's at. What what happened to you, man? Yeah, this this full blow tip into anti-intellectual, like, I believe in the dark politics. This Beast is just so frustrating to me. I find myself like constantly hoping that they end up killing him and resing him before, I don't know, before he, cured, he like worked on the legacy virus or something because that was his best era when, you know. I just not to take away all that growth but the growth just seems so unnatural in this era like what he has become like this this Henry Kissinger-esque character is so far and away from what I recognize and from the, the the motivations of the character that I recognize if these five issues had been the descent that turned one of our major characters into the ultimate x-villain moving forward and that had been Beast instead of Moira I, I think that it I'd would run. have it would no, have chef, done its absolutely. job a lot better this whole Absolutely. arc has been building towards that from the issue the first issue of x-force you're absolutely right i think that would have been much more believable for everybody involved i i personally do think that this beast makes a lot of sense but it's too much one where is beast's gut that's number one he is too muscular and too lean here he needs to have his you know his dad bod gut this pa the power builder gut that he's been having specifically because that's supposed to represent his hubris as i've read in an interview of percy and i don't understand why it's not here that's number one number two i am glad some other people agree that Sage is the linchpin for Krakoan. Without Sage, Krakoa would not happen. Sage is the most important Krakoan. Sage was so badass in this issue. I am still waiting for everyone to just be like, Sage, please, thank you for everything you do. Because she truly is, like, one of the only reasons that Krakoa can do anything. Like, I, I don't know where Krakoa would be without specific, like, literally without Sage. That's some good editorial there, though. Because I remember Jordan D. White back in the early Hawkpox era in interviews, like, saying that, like, how he had spent, like, two years whenever he was out at cons and things. And knowing that the Krakoan era was coming and everyone was coming back, like, what X-Men characters do you miss? Who do you want to see more of? Like, and he was shocked by like how like one in every two to three people would just like go on on like how great Sage was and their love for Sage and how they needed her back. And that was that was one of his like when they were first lining up the books, like someone's got it like Sage has got to be like we need to be using Sage in a crucial point here, like bringing her in. And it has worked so well. It's what she deserves. I am confused by Beast. It seems, and it's a, it's a fine quirk that's where they're going, where Beast is a lot more concerned about his research and science right now. But like, it didn't feel like Beast recognized this as like a vital, important threat. He was moving a little slow, a little like, I'm going to take my time with doing this. He felt like he had like, I don't want to say lazy, but just like there wasn't any urgency in the way that Beast was acting throughout this issue. And I felt, was really confused by that because it feels like 
Beast would be somebody who'd be like, my research, I, this can't happen to my research. Like, why isn't he freaking out more? He's spent all of his time explaining exactly what Sage was doing to Sage. So I guess that was, <laughs> I guess that's what he was doing instead of any fucking real work. I also heard an interview that Percy gave about how he wanted Beast to keep getting bigger and grosser. And my initial take on that analysis was, isn't that, a, like, don't we have enough, like, fat phobia in these comics? Don't we use bigness enough as a visual signifier for villainy? Or hasn't that happened enough that we can kind of let go of that that trope because it really, it's a negative stereotyping and it, it's, it's kind of offensive. I was okay seeing Beast not have that in this case and still be an asshole because I like the equivocation of bigness with, like, villainy. And I love the idea that he isn't as bouncy anymore. I love the idea that he, like, even in this context, the idea that he is just, like, letting go of his his attachment to philosophy as a way forward and says, you know, action and force are the, way, are the ways forward. I like those turns as they are and and the scar across his eye from when he, like, gouged out his own eye because he was doing shady shit. But the bigness thing, I don't need that. And I was, I was okay seeing that not be on the page this time. I think looking at overall, like, not, like, Beast is its own thing, but looking at kind of what Percy did here, I think that there's a big part of it that definitely comes back to, it's strongly affected by the fact that it's not Hickman. And I don't necessarily mean that to like that Percy isn't as good as Hickman because Percy's done some things I really like and I, I don't think there's anything that I've seen from Ben Percy to tell me that he can't handle a big transitionary event in the X line. But specifically, I'm talking about how my biggest, I would say the thing that didn't stick for me out of Inferno was the Moira villain turn where we had gotten this amazing setup in Hawk Hawk. We had gotten all of her lives, all of these things. And, you know, we had seen particularly in House of X2, which was just a in landmark tour de force issue. Her go from initially thinking, oh, we should cure mutants to becoming, spending thousands of years dedicated to trying to find a way for mutants to win despite all of the pain and struggle and death and everything that like she had to suffer as a result of it. And then to have that turned in Inferno, to have like with a snap of a finger and a wave of the hand, it become no, really all along she's just wanted to kill mutants, but she was scared of Destiny and Mystique. And now that she's had to face Destiny and Mystique, it's all coming out. All of those thousands of years of, of struggle and, and fighting and planning to try to help mutants finally succeed. It was all just, you know, it, it was all just fake. It was all just bullshit. It was like, Moira all along. I, I that turn sets up this. The other part for me is to try to make this so Wolverine-centric. I feel like Hickman did too good a job, particularly in his X-Men series, of building up mutant technology and mutant systems of like, my God, the amazing things that can be done when you like creatively work two to three mutants' powers together. Like, holy fuck. And we saw that, I mean, at its probably peak in Planet Size X-Men. And so then to say like, hey, we have a huge potentially timeline altering status quo ending destruction of everything event let's just throw all the wolverines at it that's it like all the wolverines we have everyone with claws just stab the fuck out of this is like it doesn't really work post mutant systems and technology i agree this isn't even a mutant circuit it's literally just a fucking bunch of knives thrown at a problem and if you have enough knives and the 
the right knives that are the sharpest, then you can get the job done. And that is like seemingly the thesis statement of this entire series. <laughs> and like, I do like the turn for Moira to villain. I think it makes sense. I like the slow and structured and nuanced way that it was dealt with through Hoxpox, Hickman's X-Men, and Inferno. It happened very fast for a lot of people, but I, I felt like there was at least justification, motivation there, stuff that was built from the beginning. I could believe that somebody can go time crazy or be stressed out over their own survival after that long of living. All of that is fine. I like where Moira is at the end of this issue. I like that she's a new Omega Sentinel and a big bad of the Phalanx and probably going to join Arcus. I like all that. It's the execution that kills me. I think the way it was executed was clunky. Uh, I hesitate to call it clumsy because I think that's a mean word, but I, I would say it's adjacent to that. It's just that she's been like hammered flat into a character with one dimension. And the one dimension is the mutants rejected me, so now I have to end their entire existence. I'm nothing but a petty Judas, and that's all I am. The mutants are, they thought they were angels, now they're devils. Like, it's so black and white, it's so, it's childishly simple. And it's something that I would expect more from her. The way you talk about her hammered flat into one dimension, there's a bit of like, personal, like, just, ugh, like, because that's the exact opposite of what we got in House of X number two. House of X number two, yep, so like, correct. turned this into, and um, took a character that was a, a solid, strong character from the past, who'd been gone for 20 years, and turned her into this incredibly vital, nuanced, deeply important character with, and again, like a woman with tremendous agency over the whole line and the whole mutant universe. And from that, we've seen very quickly over the past three, four months of our real time, her hammered flat into, you know, a one-dimensional villain, a Cameron Hyde of the 2020s. And that, yeah, it, it feels like a letdown or disappointment or almost like a, like I uh, to have gone back on House of X 2 like that. It, it, it bothers me in a way I, I'm not necessarily putting the word together on. How do we think the blading on those claws works? Are they edged on one side and smooth on another? Are they bladed on all sides? Are they sharp on all sides? Because I think the comics want us to think that they're just 100% sharp on all points of contact, and I just don't see how that works. I think they're supposed to be bladed on the inside. I've seen them used so that the top outside edge is also sharp, which kind of makes sense with the way it's been drawn in the 90s, where it's like, they're kind of flat and then beveled out to a sharp point on the top, but on the bottom, they're entirely sharp, you know? And so I could I could buy, like, dragging the back of the tip of the claw across somebody who would cut them. So it it kind of works for me, but, like, it's also one of those things where, me personally, and this is not necessarily a direct answer, but me personally, when I, ever since Ash pointed this out to me, when I see Wolverine's claws longer than his forearms, I'm like, where the fuck do they go? <laughs> like, they're not bending at the wrist. They're not bending at the elbow. Yeah, I thought the, the boulder slice in particular on uh, Digital 10 was... I was like, boulder slice. That, work? that doesn't Thank you. work. Even that sound effect was ridiculous. Slack. I'm like, using adamantium claws to cut through a boulder and the sound is slack. <laughs> <laughs> Although Ga Gabby was right. Think, you know, fight smart, not hard. That's That was a good move because in the real physical world, it probably would have just crushed him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it probably would not have <laughs> slipped through like fucking butter. Yeah, I, especially with I three claws. that on my son's Wolverine claws that he has, they are beveled to the top and expected to be, you know, pretend to be sharp along three long edges and pointy. Yeah, we, we have to keep in mind too that it would be way smarter to cut a boulder with just one thin blade than the three blades that would fuck up the whole <laughs> sharpness aspect of them. I, I imagine Wolverine just like every night like sharpening his claws again. <laughs> In that boulder scene, he does seem to go at it from the side. Like, so he's not even going from the top or the bottom. He's going from the side of his claws. So like, I, they somehow have to, met, maybe they're like diamond shaped where like they can like be sharp on four different fronts. But that's a lot 
he has that poor knife sharpener that he has that he runs his claws through every day has to be so messed up. Wolverine's claws, I think, are a fascination of physicists everywhere because they don't make a lot of sense. I, I like to imagine that when he like ejects his claws, that like his healing factor, like because they're sharp, so they have to be sharp in his body, so they have to cut things when they're moving. I like uh, he, he, I, I imagine it hurts <sighs> to use them for a second because like they're all if they're always sharp, especially on the bottom side, which is the side that's like closer to his skin and the insides. I I think maybe there have been a little bit of consistency issues because from my understanding, what is what everybody else is saying is that they're supposed to be sharp on the side, the bottom part of it, and they're I don't want to say soft, but like not not dulled, but they're not. That's not you don't cut things like reverse like that. That's just weird. Flat. They're supposed flat to be sharp the other on side, side is facing and sharp in the flat. <laughs> that, that's true. And I mean, he more so like punctures that he does like cutty cutty, but you know. <laughs> And, and sometimes they're just drawn like they're just like like cylinders, and they're not even beveled at all. Yeah, so. those are cylinders on the phalanx wolverine right there. Those are round stabbing things. So like, then if, if they're just round stabbing things, how are they sharp at all on the sides? But yeah, slicing boulders. <laughs> slicing boulders. Slicing boulders. Yeah. Hey, also, did you guys like that Akihiro punches uh, Omega Wolverine in the chest with his bare hand on this adamantium rib cage and doesn't have his claws out? He just uh, like goes bare through a hand punch. on phalanx. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, digital page nine. He just goes like, oh yeah, I wish you weren't such a monster, and then punches him in the chest, and he's like, ow, my hand. I'm like, duh, idiot. Those are some of the, wor- like, the Doc N versus Omega Wolverine, to me, were some of the, yeah, the most questionable art in in this. And, and and I mentioned it earlier because of, like, the facial expressions on Omega Wolverine. Like, this Omega Wolverine really shouldn't have facial expressions at this <laughs> point in it. <laughs> it's not working it's a bit 2000 AD. It's got a bit of a got, a got a bit of that vibe to it. It's got some gristle sticking to him. Claws longer than forearms, definitely a problem. It makes me think of like all of the Wolverine Batman comp in terms of like the different ways that like people stylize Batman's like ears or cape or things like that. Yeah. Yes. You see that same thing with Wolverine, but like the over stylized, super long Kelly Jones ears, like it doesn't work on like an over stylized, super long like Wolverine claw. Like they can't be like Lady Destro claws. <laughs> <laughs> they look really cool when they're like that, but I personally, I would prefer Wolverine to have about three inch claws, just like real short, just like him. Why was Valkyrie in this run and what happened to that? It's because she's in everything right now, I think, but... And I'm here for it, but... She looked beautiful. I'm not saying she didn't look beautiful tonight, but she was just another tool. She was just the method at which Moira escapes Mystique. When we're going back to characters Moira would have connected with, like, pre her death, like, when we're going, like, pre-Legacy Virus. Like, she had become a doctor and definitely makes sense that, like, oh, here's a character we can pull that, like, would have known Moira from this era that she could go to, who now has a different role in the Marvel Universe, but is like completely unaware of like, you know, all of the X-Men shenanigan shit side of it. I'm glad you bring that up, Josh, because Nico had to explain to me why Valkyrie knew any of this, and that is only available from reading other stuff. But if you're just reading X-Men comics, and if you're just reading Wolverine since Hacksbox, and you see Valkyrie in this, you're like, at least I was, why is she not surprised that Moira is back from the dead after like 30 years, or however long it's been, 10 years? Why is she unsurprised that she's on Krakoa? Why does she not know about the... There's so many things yeah. that don't make any sense with how she interacts with her. That 
that makes sense if you know more about like the wider Marvel universe and Valkyrie. But in this series, it is like I was profoundly baffled when Valkyrie showed up and was completely unsurprised that Moira's back from the dead, a mutant, no longer a mutant, and on the run for Krakoa. It was all it was like I just accepted it because we, I was in for the Wolverine ride. But like definitely that felt like a weird hole. I really miss editorial footnotes. Like yeah, miss, where are my editorial note boxes? What, like when did they decide that this was not a convenient? Like it sells more comics because people go looking for comics so what why don't we do this anymore it makes it makes it so much easier to understand that something happened off the page and it isn't something that we're just supposed to like be like oh, okay this is happening now fine like i would have loved a box that had said and we all know that jane knows what's going on because she had a conversation with death and death is really pissed about krakoa it's like Thank oh you. yes yeah that would have been extreme that would have solved the problem the other thing that i thought was kind of left unexplained was why did she have cancer who gave her the cancer and the reasoning for that just wasn't there. You're absolutely right that yeah. it is not explained in this. I think this is part of the ongoing X-Force tumor saga that appears to be maybe getting picked up right after this. There's like a whole Cerebrax thing, Krakoa. It's a big deal. I, I feel like they were hinting about like the no places and like we got yeah. a lot of things about Krakoan tumors and no places and where she was like sprinkled through both Inferno and Death that I feel like it was just enough to like not have to really go in depth but for us to know that like there is a connection there. Yeah. But, like, it, it's weird that, like, Percy through Moira hints that it might have been Xavier and Magneto, or she could just be fucking paranoid and blaming everything on the mutants again. But, like, it's definitely a weird choice to put in here and then to not follow up on. My thing is, how does her losing her powers give her cancer? Like, she's not Wolverine. It's not like she lost her right. healing power. Right. Like, her losing her powers shouldn't be like, and now I have cancer and I'm going to die. Like, her having cancer should have been the biggest fucking problem for the Marvel Universe, like, if she had cancer while she still had her powers. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess she hasn't been to the doctor in a while. She hasn't been <laughs> hanging out. I guess she just didn't know. You're left to fill in the blanks on a little bit too much, and some of it's in a way that there could be a lot of misinterpretation. And, you know, sometimes it's great because you can get some great discussions about, like, hey, what's the cause of this and you're like what what's going on here but sometimes you're just like you know give me an answer yeah, if, I mean, if magneto and xavier didn't know moira had cancer that seems like a thing that they should have been fucking up on right like if they if they can't let her die you'd think they'd be like constantly monitoring her health. <laughs> that is the type of thing that i would totally expect mediocre white men who think that they're greater than they really are to That's like fair. pretty big fucking important major detail that you, you know you shouldn't have missed buddy especially those two uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that, that tracks for me, actually. They put trackers in her, but they couldn't just, like, you know, do health screenings every now and then. <laughs> just, just like a man. What also just feels weird about this is that the, the cancer didn't play a role. She's like, I'm on a timer and all this, but she was doing a lot of things. Like, she was very active and very violent and very badass and cool in a lot of scenes that I'm like, were you not coughing blood, like, three seconds ago? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the part of cancer that doesn't affect your movement at all. <laughs> yeah, she's just serious problems but <laughs> she's coughing blood she's not tired in the depiction of cancer for for those of us who aren't like familiar with like someone who has cancer i do think that we blend together like the effects of cancer and the effects of chemo way too much in terms of like western media portrayal of cancer 
That's definitely true, but but lung cancer does have some serious physical effects, like major back pain. She was running like, a lot for someone with lung cancer. It's progressed to the point where like these tumors are are visible on a scan like that. There's there are going to be all sorts of physiological problems. They were also big tumors. Those were not. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, this weird conflict of like you're setting up this idea that Moira's on a timer and she has to do this within this set amount of time, but it doesn't Five feel issues. like she's. On a timer, five issues, but it this doesn't like it's not affecting really her in any way, really. Props to the letterer because there are I really love the creative like when it adds the coughs and it's like red and the way that the letters are designed, really stunning and really helps sell like okay, she's coughing blood. This is she's supposed to be sick, but I feel like it was just a convenience thing to be like, yeah, this is why she's doing all this so quickly. It feels like nothing about this really screams that like this was pressing. Yes, artificial rushing of the plot. Yeah, no, very much agree, very much agree. There was a lot of that, and that was the, you know, like like you said earlier, not clumsy, but clunky. Clunky was a really good word for the kind of, like, assembly of, of a lot of this. And, and I think that as we were reading through, while some parts definitely seem more important than others, like, having gotten to the end of the 10 issues, you can look at it as a whole now and say, yeah, like, okay, if we were waiting for an explanation on this, or if we were waiting for this to tie into something else like it didn't happen it was it was just that it was just you know yeah she has cancer we don't know why we're not going to talk about the serious implications of if she hadn't been depowered we're not gonna you know yes she's on a timer and has to run because mystique's gonna kill her yes she killed mystique and mystique's not going to be in any of the other issues but she's still got to run and on a timer because whatever like there's it's it's not the most well crafted unfortunately and i think some of that goes to the fact that you know moira is the main character in a book called Wolverine. Like, how many pages are devoted to Dabby Stabby time in a book that, looking at those five issues, the main purpose, what is the number one main objective of this book? It is moving Moira from the end of infinity to where she is at the end of this. Like, that is the main purpose of this. And it is relegated to being the B story over a clunkily tied together Wolverine stabs a lot of things in a lot of different parts of his life. You know, that is a really, really good point. A lot of us have been waiting for this continuation of the Moira story, obviously. We got reintroduced to her in Hawksbox, and besides a few, like, one-page cameos, we never really saw her until the Inferno event again. And now, to get her so soon and for the transformation to be complete so quick is odd in itself. Like, she's such a huge, integral character. You think that this arc could have been told in a Moira-centric arc, but no, it's told in a Logan-centric arc, where half of the story is, is just trying to resolve the, the bridge over more than dealing with the Moira. And it, it feels like it doesn't serve Logan as much as it should nope. for a story that is about Logan, right? Ostensibly. Yeah. We spent two and a half years like salivating for more Moira. We finally get it in Inferno and we're like, yes. And then the next thing, the very next thing we get is is a Moira story. And it's like, whoa, whoa. Like, like you could have waited six to 12 months to give me this. It did not have to be like, unless, and I don't know, like I'm looking at the back page here. The very first our entry into Destiny of X is Immortal X-Men number one. So maybe this needed to be resolved before Immortal X-Men number one. Like it was a lot of Moira right after we had just been sated. So we weren't like desperately waiting. Like it wasn't, we weren't jonesing for it and we needed our fix. Yeah, it almost would have been nice to see her step through that portal into mystery for a while. And we don't see her and we know that she's an actor operating in the background. And we don't know if she's still on the side of mutants or not. It certainly would have been 
easier to buy her villain turn if we had not seen her in some time and she had had some development off page. This all happening like a day after Inferno. Man, I don't know. Why is she so afraid of Destiny? Like, she's gotten killed by Sentinels more time, which like now it looks like she is a Sentinel. <laughs> she's been killed by Wolverine. She's been killed by times. Wolverine three times now. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> she didn't have a fear of stabbing more than yeah. a fear of fire. I do like that she got to kill Wolverine the way Wolverine killed her a number of times in past lives. As the successor to the Inferno event, both, you know, in just, you know, continuity and picking up from the Moira aspect of it all, I... For me, I don't think it really hits the mark. It doesn't hit the nail on the head. I, I obviously think it was far too soon to do this event right after Inferno. Where are all of y'all with that idea? Agreed. Also, I think the trajectory is disappointing that, you know, we've had three big Moira stories now and they are the quality that we're receiving of the story is, and I mean, look, Hoxbox was amazing. So like the next thing wasn't going to be as good, but that it feels like the return that we're getting on this story is lessening each time we go back to it is is not a great trajectory. When you have the Borg in Star Trek, right? The first few times they show up, like, oh my god. But as you keep finding ways to beat them or, you know, talk about it, you're like, oh, okay, they're maybe not as cool as we thought. I really loved how nuanced Hoxpox Moira was. I loved that she was so mean, but she was still, you know, she was still part of the Krakoan nation. She was still part of the, the mutant survival project. She was still on the side, on the side of mutants. It feels like that nuance is completely gone now like we're just like oh here's a villain here's another sentinely like cyborg villain that's got a lot of knowledge and is gonna just antagonize the mutants and i would have loved to see her take a more nuanced stance than that she does look like an omega sentinel and you know despite the fact that that's my twitter handle i don't love them it's been done and with karima on the stage already it's gonna be a crowded stage of omega sentinels yeah that's a great like that they've turned her more into a character that they've already been spotlighting in Karima. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is... Yeah, agreed. The the takeaway that I did like was I finally personally understand what she was doing with Banshee, which is just playing around because she didn't care about him at all. That whole relationship that they had was just a diversion for her because when push came to shove, she would rather skin the guy than ask for his help directly. Some of that reads in there anyway, even in the old stuff. There's one of them in particular where Banshee comes back to Muir Island and it's, it's one of them where we have Moira in hot black leather with an assault rifle like things up outfit and um and Sean comes back and he's like oh like that took everything I got like I need to rest like I don't know and she like sends him back out like no fuck like get out there and go like and he's like I don't even know I can fly she's like get your ass back out there and go fucking like historically it does that 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 tracks with her character as well well think of that she brought rory campbell in as her lab assistant future ahab yep. that's a really interesting thing to do in light of her future knowledge her foreknowledge like, really would love and enjoy and i i could even i could eventually maybe buy moira as a villain and i think that could be a really interesting turn i just don't know if this book did the proper setup to get us to that point i don't don't really get the takeaway of Moira descending into villainry and villainous and anti-mutantum because it feels so completely out of character for how fast it happened. It just feels vindictive. It also feels like she's like, they're not giving me enough credit. They're not thanking me enough for everything that I did. Well, nobody knows what you did, Moira. You've been uh, hidden your entire time in this timeline. What do you expect from them? <laughs> it just feels like a weird takeaway and weird that we're 
meant to say from this, ah, yes, Moira is now a villain. This makes sense. And I say, no, sir, I, I don't know if I can fully buy what you're trying to sell me. Yeah, that the only thing that it goes with is like my head canning, tying it into issues from like 30 plus years ago that like I love playing around with my brain, rereading kind of post retcon headcanon shit for me. Like that should be like a supplemental like cherry on top bonus, not like my only justification of like how this works. I'd love to see like an infinity comic or something that revisited some of these key moments from this life of Moira and gave us a little more fleshed out context with the retcon. I think that oh, would, I would that love that. Really cool. That I wanted cool that so much. I've been waiting since Hoxpox for us to get like shit into like her relationship with Rain or her on Muir Island or her stuff with um, Joe McTaggart or like just like revisiting things we've seen through the new lens that I personally feel like that was a huge missed opportunity on their part over the last couple years that that we never got anything doesn't even have to move the present story forward at all could have just been playing in the past and revisiting through the new lens and we never got to see that agreed no that'd be really cool that's I want to see that obviously we know what she thinks of Sean now because she skinned his face and <laughs> wore his body as a suit to get through the door Ooh. maybe that's why she did it the whole time who knows justice, justice also, for Sean Cassidy please yeah. that was a really clean skin bodysuit like there was no blood like did she drain his blood beforehand like that's that, <laughs> very bloody work to, for it to have been done that well doesn't she have to like have him like in a pit like while she's like slowly dehydrating him and like having him put on lotion every day like <laughs> like but yeah, where, where's the dog? It puts the lotion on its skin. It or else puts it the lotion skin. on its skin. Moira's just in the it mirror. It puts the lotion on its skin. fuck me. I am excited for the return of the X-Line. I can't wait for Destiny of X to start. Starting with Immortal X-Men, which I'm so fucking excited for. Yes. The image of Sean's discarded skin on Krakoa will haunt me for at least three more weeks. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. well, for me, this arc is a bit of don't worry about it kind of thing. I'm hoping that we can just let it like fade into the recesses of memory and move forward from here. And I'm still sad that I've never got the, the Rain Moira moment I've been waiting two, three years for. You know, after the Sean moment, I'm kind of glad we didn't get <laughs> Yeah, Rain's been through enough. Yeah. Hey everybody. So, okay, it's been my mission to turn this show into like an Electra Daredevil podcast for the last couple of months. So we've been talking a lot about Devil's Reign. And the one piece of Devil's Reign that we can definitely agree belongs on this show is certainly Devil's Reign X-Men, which whether it's Devil's Reign X-Men, Devil's Reign Marauders, or Devil's Reign Emma Frost, no matter how you look at it, we've really enjoyed looking at this series from Jerry Dugan and Phil Noto. Our coverage has definitely shown a love, not just for these characters, but for the ideas contained in this story. And we're definitely hopeful that these storylines are going to come back up at some point under Jerry Dugan's pen. We hope that you guys tune in Wednesday for our normal X-Men X Wednesday, which is going to see more X-Deaths of Wolverine and some lookbacks on that series, as well as Life of Wolverine number 10. We're going to talk about Patch and more. So definitely check out Wednesday for more X-Goodness before we resume Marvel Fanfare Fridays on Friday. We love making the show for you guys three times a week, every week. So until next time, guys, enjoy this last segment. Keep those Krakoan gateways open and those mutant lights lit. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And the show X is for Podcast on Twitter. See you guys next time. Hey. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Access for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and many just moments where Emma Frost is a goddamn queen week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me telepathically freeing police dogs on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. Hi, everyone. This is Juancho, and you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa. And I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over as an admin for the House of North Star on Facebook. And you guys can find me, Nico, over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And we hope you guys survive this experience. And that would include those of you who faked your death many years ago and are now just living a really cool new life where Electra comes and visits you once in a while. I want that life. <laughs> I want Emma Frost and Electra to free me from the shackles of mundanity. I mean, it's same, truly the dream. Hard same. We are talking about Devil's Reign number three, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noah. Letters by VCs Corey Pettit and designed by Tom Muller. Yeah, I think Nico summed up perfectly the takeaway from this issue, which is that, you know, I'm ready to disappear and start a life on a farm where Electra trains me in martial arts. So we have talked about so much fucking Electra Nachos on this show. She's always been my number one gal. And so the fact that I can just shove it down everyone's face right now is like the best thing that's ever happened. Number two. (laughs) I think of you every time. Oh, it's such a good feeling that everybody's like, like I know there's people out there like exes and other people who just don't want to think of me that because she is so synonymous with my fandom every time they see her it's got to just that special place in hell kind of twist in it's so nice it feels so good. I just thought that this was a really great Electra story. Like the Emma Frost in it was really good too. I have some issues with the ending, but I overall just like, I enjoyed the ride and more than anything, I've loved the coverage. Like listening to you guys talk about it and interact has been such a pleasure. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the ending actually. The first thing I thought when reading this issue is we must be getting close to Easter because this book is nothing but Easter eggs. Whether it's the reference to Turk Barrett, the fixer or the Orcus symbol on the restraint collars, or even just getting Emma Frost's mom's full name, Hazel Donovan. One of the things I have loved about this whole book is both the very little and really huge ways in which it has expanded our understanding of who Emma Frost is. And something that I really enjoyed that you said was if this had been called like Devil's Reign Emma Frost. Yes, I was going to bring this up. Go. Yeah, I a thousand percent like we're at a point where because the X-Men have so dynamically resumed dynastic leadership of the Marvel Universe in its totality that we have re-approached where the X-Men can no longer involve themselves so minimally in anything they're in. So I think the disservice here was that Devil's Reign had all of these amazing X-Men tie-ins. Like I would have loved another three issues that was Devil Reign's X-Men that dealt with the Ben Uric of it all. And I would have loved another three issues that was like, what about the mutants that have dual citizenship in Krakoa and Hell's Kitchen? Like there's so much here I could have done with a 10 issue miniseries of just that stuff that you know I loved this so much it just felt like maybe the name was a little off it was a little bit false advertising because this really is Devil's Reign Emma Frost you know it started out being called Devil's Reign Marauders and then the title was changed to Devil's Reign X-Men you know Emma is coming off of being primarily in the Marauders but she's also been in a ton of other books so Marauders you know might have made sense but there's really no Marauders except her and 
then as far as the X-Men go, they're in that first issue. But this isn't really about them in the same way that even a book like Death of Doctor Strange, Dark Knight, and X-Men was really the core X-Men team doing what they said they intended to do when they left Krakoa to go live in New York, which is, you know, be a superhero team and be out in the world. This book didn't really have anything to do with any of that. And, you know, whether or not it ought to have, because that's a really important thing and it's important to the greater implications of the Devil's Reign story, that's one question. But the bigger question is, you know, and I think we can already say the answer is just for sales, but why title this Devil's Reign X-Men when it really is a story about Emma Frost? And I think probably one of the most important stories that's been told about her since the Morrison run ended. Interesting. I mean, I always took it as her name is just synonymous with the X-Men now, but I think you guys do bring up a really good point. Uh, I do... If it's just a word, let us have it! <laughs> I do think it's mainly sales. Like, the the, the, the name X-Men will sell. <laughs> I think there's also somewhat of a messed opportunity here uh, when you consider that there's also an Electra title that's just Devil's Reign time and like as far as I remember there wasn't like any indication that Electra because that series deals with Electra's past right and there wasn't like any indication of Electra be training this young girl Isabel like to be a ninja and that and I think that's somewhat of a missed opportunity you know TK and I talked about that miniseries as well as two accompanying significant works by Frank Miller in the form of Man Without Fear 1 through 5 and Electra Lives Again, which if you go back and check our coverage, I describe Electra Lives Again as the most consecutive bulge shots of any superhero in tidy whiteies in the history of Marvel Comics. And I'm not wrong. And <laughs> I, I do agree. You know what? In thinking about it that way, I would have loved a little more synergy across the Devil's Reign line involving this tie-in. And you know, Nico, something we talked about when we were talking about Electra, Black, White, and Blood 3, is the very plausible connection that was written into that issue between Electra and Typhoid Mary in their past in an institution together. Similarly, the idea that Emma Frost and Electra worked together in their past under Wilson Fisk makes a ton of sense. It is really believable and it's the cornerstone of the background for this plot and why these two would know each other. I think the problem with setups like those in some ways, it's not necessarily a problem, but when you point that out, you make a reader just need a lot more. Like, that's an exciting connection. The the Typhoid Mary and Electra one, as soon as I read that, I was like, where is their, you know, maxi series? Where is their ongoing where they're just trying to clean up Hell's Kitchen? And same thing now that I've seen Electra and Emma Frost on page together and know they have this history, I just want an omnibus. If for no other reason, one of the things that I think is so challenging about finding a way to get these dynamic women in the same issue is... I have a hard time coming up with reasonable threats for them. I think the heart of a really great Emma Frost issue is it's hard to talk about the plot because you can't stop talking about how great Emma Frost was in it. The thing that makes expanding into sort of Electra's past and getting more of who she dealt with, like, you know, that it was Mary and that it was Emma, I think it makes those times where we've said it's really hard to put somebody against Electra that's believable, it kind of follows up on it because this is a class of women that we sort of hold above others. So to find out that this this class of women interacted. We can really believe it. If you tried to tell me that like Tigra hung with these women, I'd laugh at you. Yes, I absolutely agree. Does anyone else think this mini sort of undermines the main Devil's Reign title in a way? 
Is it the ending? Is it the ending? Is it Especially, the ending? Yeah, because you're, I mean, for everyone who's reading those rain, um, you know, the heroes are having a really, really tough time against Wilson Fisk. And then here comes Emma and she just like, poof, she's in. Why is Phil Fisk still a threat, right? A thousand percent, Juancho. I'm like, I'm not coming for Emma, but like Winter Soldier is one of the greatest fighters in the Marvel Universe against my will. I don't care for Bucky Bars and I don't care for the Winter Soldier. I care for Sebastian Stan and I'm making out on a couch together as we seductively look into each other's eyes and stroke each other's faces that's what i fucking care about when it comes to the winter soldier but other than that i have no use for the man on the moon in the wall or whatever he did when he replaced old man nick fury and then nobody acknowledged original sin again and i had to live with that so for me right i think that when we're talking about like how powerful this kingpin is if he could not be felled by bucky Barnes, right and if anybody read the devil's reign Winter Soldier tie-in which had some of the most exquisite art I have seen in like a decade that was some of the best art I've ever seen Fisk just fucking throws Bucky around like it's nothing and I accept how powerful Emma is but it completely invalidates the strength of the argument that currently Fisk is untouchable I think the problem is not what happened in this issue it's that we didn't get enough setup for why Emma could not finish the job if she had wanted to and i think you know especially because duggan wrote this the idea of like a krakoan international incident being needed to be avoided at all costs in the current climate is a perfectly acceptable like i powers wise and intelligence wise i emma frost could easily get in the room with wilson the reason he remains untouchable for me in this moment is for political reasons and that's why he has set himself up so adroitly because if you can get at him physically you can't get at him for political reasons so no matter what he is untouchable i uh, to me that was the headcanon and message that i read into this you know because she does say she's still coming for him there were reasons why she couldn't do it here the book did not do a great job of explaining them and it would have really raised the stakes for readers all around and for especially for fans of the x universe like you know they have so much going on they have so much power they have a nation to themselves why is this their fight at all and why do they care they're and that's why maybe we needed you know six other issues of this and expanded story yeah i think sort of when going back to the first issue i think we may have set ourselves up for disappointment on that front because we all know that fisk is either daredevil or spider-man villain so like emma frost is not gonna take down fisk for whatever reason yeah, they don't even let Castle take him down. And I think that's just a problem with event tines like this. That they sort of don't go anywhere in, in plot terms because we, we, as you said before, we do learn about Emma's past and, and what she did with Electra. But like, we know Emma's not going to take Fisk down. I do think that this series was truthfully more meant to be like Emma Frost world building because that's, to me, that's just what the entire series was. That seems to have been Duggan's main goal. And, you know, I appreciate it. I am a cigarette emoji for Emma Frost. Like it's, there's nothing that I want more than Emma Frost backstory, you know, moments that Emma Frost was important across 616 times that Emma Frost has interacted with characters. You never would have thought she would have, but they actually have this incredible history. There's nothing about this that didn't work for me in and of itself. It's just when you look at it in the bigger picture that, you know, it's, it's not even bad. It's just that we needed other stuff 
to balance this out. This is so Emma heavy and it's so unclear what this has to do with the X-Men and what it has to do with Devil's Reign. It's tough to bring it all together and see a cohesive whole that makes sense. Yeah, I think the problem is just that it's a tie-in to a Daredevil event and it's not like a plot of the X-Men or Marauders where this could get explored more heavily, right? And I feel like there's so much competing with it in Dugan's other work, like that there isn't a direct connection between this and X-Men with Ben Urich, who is both a Spider-Man and a Daredevil and a Fisk character. It's just strange. It feels like there is a sense of incompleteness, like, you know, perhaps when this was all pitched, the timetable was a little bit different in the first place, so maybe stuff was supposed to shake out at different points, and maybe this was going to happen concurrent with the stuff in X-Men. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I really did like this. I liked it a lot, and Noto can draw anything. Noto is such a, you know, an expert at these characters, but like, I did just maybe feel like, yeah, you know, Juancho, I love, I love that perspective, that it's, it was just a promise that you can't deliver on because there is no way this is going to be a pivotal moment. And if it is, then this is going to be one of those things where everybody goes back and these back issues are going to suddenly triple in value and everyone's going to look for those threads and they'll never be able to pull it off again. So Nico, I want to call out one thing or really ask you a question. Oh yeah. Phil Noto can draw anything. Absolutely love him. Was a little bit surprised by his depiction of Wilson Fisk's physique. Yes, I I actually was curious if anybody was going to mention this as well. Yes. Yeah. Um. So I like my Wilson kind of solid. I like my Wilson uh, like a fridge that knows how to enjoy a cook. You know what I mean? Like he can, you know, he could be a muscle daddy, but he's the muscle daddy that knows how to slam back a cheesecake. And I thought he was drawn a little incongruous with not just my mental image of Fisk, but perhaps what is the more consistent image of Fisk. There's a softness that all art by Phil Noto offers characters. Like I used to joke that I don't know that Phil Noto is drawing Kid Cable or if it's just that that's what Cable looks like when Phil Noto draws him. And then we saw Phil Noto's real Cable and I was like, oh no, there are all the lines. Yep, nope. Now he looks like, uh, you know, a Clint Eastwood uh, cross hatching. So I think that some of it is the texture and translation of the way Phil Noto renders physicality. But I also think some of it is they made Wilson a little doughy. They did. And, you know, it's not the end of the world. We have a lot of depictions of Kingpin the way that I think a lot of us see him. That that just surprised me. That particularly, especially it's like one of the last panels. He's very saggy and droopy. Yeah, and I just want to be clear. I love a big boy. Oh, really yeah, no, me too. It's specifically that this is just incongruous with right. the, the, the quality of density and musculature. Like, this is a little bit closer to Fred Dukes, who yes. I just, I don't think we should ever refer to him as his codename ever again. Uh, this is a little bit closer to Fred than it is to what I expect of Kingpin. And while I still think Fred is the sweetest, most handsome man, it's just not the body I expected on Kingpin in an arc where we're meant to think Kingpin is very powerful and very masculine and, and very unstoppable. This was a visual choice that surprised me as well. And I think that that just adds up to perhaps my problems with the ending, that it makes Fisk way too vulnerable and just negates all the threat I've, I've been actually feeling for the past 30 issues of Daredevil and 
Incredibles Reign. I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. Agreed. I like. I mean, I literally messaged TK within like seconds of reading it, and I was just like, no, doesn't work. And I'm sort of on the other side of the spectrum, and I can fully acknowledge that a lot of it is me headcanoning. But to me, there is an unspoken thing, which is that Emma cannot do this. She physically could, but the repercussions of killing Kingpin would be too great for her. And again, that's why, you know, he has set himself up so that he's invulnerable on multiple fronts. She could get him on one, but the other ones would be, the consequences would be too high. So she's not going to do it, but boy, does she want to. And I got to tell you, I would be really excited to read Kingpin versus White Queen. I would too. I'm actually on the same spectrum as uh, as TK with that. I think it's reasonable to say that there is someone who can. I accept that it would be uh, someone of Emma's caliber. And I do think that it's just that the political and social ramifications would just destroy her in the process. Just to add a little bit of a wrinkle to, to that idea, but why wouldn't Emma help Matt or Steve or Ben Riley or whomever? Right? I can get you in. I can, I can, you know, restrain him and you can stop all of the beating children and yeah, like murdering people. Do it from the shadows and doesn't have to public, doesn't have to be like this big spectacle, just up there that will get in and end it. And that's it. I mean, and that's that's like, I, I know we're just like headcanon in it, yeah. but I think Dogen must maybe, I'm not going to say failed, but maybe missed out on like, making that clear. And I would be very curious to know if that came up or, you know, if this was just like, this is a story I want to tell, this is how we're going to do it. Because, you know, I, as soon as you say that, I have thoughts and answers as to why that doesn't happen. And I think they're really interesting. And I'm not going to get into it because then we're just writing fan fiction, but yeah. we're spitballing these ideas. Okay, well, what about this thing? Well, here's my idea for why that works. I love doing that. And I think there are times where it's really important to see that be part of the creative and editorial process because these questions do start to, on balance, outweigh the quality of the story and make something that you sort of can't look away from to enjoy the story. I think there are answers to these questions. There's a way to make this work, but it does require putting extra time in. And again, we got three issues of Devil's Reign, what's really Devil's Reign, Emma Frost. We needed a bunch more to fully make this work and to get all the ideas in that we would need to understand why, especially the mutants are in the position that they're in and how that relates to everything else. Because I think through other Devil's Reign titles, we understand perfectly where everybody else is. Yeah, you know, and as we're talking about it, I don't want to say that I like Wilson more than I like Emma Frost. Like, I don't feel like that's an Um, accurate comparison. You do. I do. You do. Like, you do. I mean, like, the way you talk to me about Wilson Fisk is the way I talk to you about Emma Frost. You do. Yeah, I mean, I think that Wilson is like, he's probably, you know, like one of my all-time favorite villains in all of fiction. I just think he is, um, you know, I don't think he's a good man. I don't love him, but like, I love the villain he represents and the threat to Daredevil's control of Hell's Kitchen. And I think it just sort of depends on what side of this argument you fall on. Are you a, an Emma Frost slightly more zer or are you a Kingpin slightly most And, you know, that's, I think, the line. Well, I think the way I, I, I tend to look at it in, in terms of the story is that I think that Emma actually just makes a lot of sense as a foil for a lot of characters like Wilson Fisk because she is a powerful and skilled telepath and she does have all of the money in the world and she has so many resources. So if anyone's going to threaten these men, it would be her. And it's just really interesting to see this story play out because she's 
she's been in their world. She's been part of the the underworld criminal organization, you know, in Marvel, and she she's interacted with all of them. She knows what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. And I just really like seeing that now she can use that as a force for, well, not necessarily good, but her own, you know, interests. Her I think own it'd end be Very cool if we saw that going forward with the Mortal X-Men, right? Like, am I taking down powerful men? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a, a perfect example of where things eventually need to start going with Krakoa because eventually the infighting is going to get a little bit tired. And yeah. Emma, as a power wielder and a power broker in the wider world, is probably at this point the most compelling person. And I think this miniseries in particular showed that to us. And, you know, the isolationism and separatism of mutants is a very interesting thing. And I love it. And I want those stories too. But I do think we've been seeing them inch into the wider world from which they come a lot more lately and you know we've got the x-men in new york now doing their thing which is very important but emma's deal is a whole other side of things that i'm very much ready to see expanded upon remember back in x-men number four by hickman when apocalypse and yeah, when, yeah like we need that but for emma yeah and yeah, i just want to clarify that i don't think emma can't do it i think that there is something about a sliding scale of understanding in every story where right now kingpin is the big deal so he's not getting fell. So I believe in this instance, they want us to see Kingpin as above Emma. And that's my problem there. It's not that I don't believe Emma is that powerful. It's that I don't believe Emma being that person in this scenario makes contextual sense. Because by that token, you know, Jean can just do anything. Emma can just do anything. Xavier can just do anything. You know, like if we're going to get into that, you know, actual power levels. Yeah. Anybody can do anything. You know, we are all the turtle and the universe is all on our backs. So like, I get that. But I, it's just, yeah, if they're going to play with the bigger universe, we got to be a little bit more thoughtful about how those pieces come together. Because it's really not that she can't. It's that it doesn't make sense here. I agree with you. And I, I think that that is a very fair point. But I'm actually really glad that you mentioned the other telepaths as well. Because that reminds me of the side dampener and COVID mask uh, vaccine correlation that they made in the comics too. I wasn't sure if anybody picked up on that. Yeah, telepathy isn't real. 40% of people think the telepathy isn't real. I just thought that was... That was yeah, that was funny. That, that was, was very just, funny. I thought you know, that was amazing. And it's one of those things where, like, it's not hard to see that there's telepaths everywhere. This is the Marvel universe. You can't hit somebody with a Kia without six <laughs> telepathic lawyers getting out and trying to sue you. So, like, I, you know, telepathy is real, motherfucker. You're getting jacked off by a telekinetic right now. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was so good for them to just be like, "Nah, we good." I'm not making any specific statements, but that sort of thinking does more often align with like law enforcement who do tend to be a little bit more no nah, i don't need masks right so yeah. it was it was an interesting petard for a pawn hoistage and now that, that you brought it up um speaking of the colors and the orcus symbol yeah up until now orcus has been just in the shadows right like orcus against mutants but now they're out in the open now everybody can see them and i think that's like a hint of what's to come in x-men yeah like orcus yeah. making public power plays not yeah just. that's yeah. definitely duggan planting a seed and 
I'm all for it, right? Yeah. It seems very hidden in plain sight to me. Yep. Yes. Yeah, because it's a very small detail. It is just a symbol on a collar that I think you only see in two panels, but it is, the collar is plain, the panel is small, and it's very clearly intentional and they want you to see it, but we're not going to deviate into a whole explanation of why it's there or what's going to happen next, which is, you know, in a lot of ways, I think really perfect, but it's just, again, you know, the, the many facets of the diamond that is Emma Frost that as another issue that is both physical powers related fighting but also political social that she's got to deal with Orcus is a big one Kingpin is a big one what if those two organizations found each other to you know take on the mutants because they're sick of their shit there are so many interesting possibilities and little moments like the like that really really set my brain going the letter that Emma Frost wrote is about where you know she explains the situation that she's in that she's found her a place to live that she's given her a new name that she's given her her mother's last name i again really just like stan emma frost to the ends of the earth and i got super choked up at this especially where she gives the line it's chaos be kind which you know emma i mean i started reading emma frost in the 90s um you know i started when she was in the coma and i've gone back and at this point read everything that she's been in but Watching her grow into the person that we see today, one of the things I always notice is that the more benevolent we see her on page, the more you can look back at everything she's done and believe that she has always been that person and that what we've seen is just a reflection of the circumstance that she's in. And when you get these moments where she is laid bare, where she's, you know, for instance, talking to a vulnerable child and she says something like, it's chaos, be kind, you really, I really do believe that she feels that way. And that was her philosophy even when she was murdering horses she did not murder <laughs> we're not gonna get into it we're not gonna get into it keep going <laughs> i even have it in my notes that was the first thing i thought of when i was like well somebody like the response to it's chaos be kind is going to be you know that moment so i wanted to say that even despite that moment i can see the kindness in emma frost's heart but i don't want to talk about it any more than that i just want to talk about how great emma is did duggan just sort of take his favorite character and put a shiny spotlight on her that isn't deserved or do you like me feel like this is actually a pretty real and true Emma Frost moment I think it's Emma deserves spotlight like even more spotlight so I agree with you everything you said just a few minutes ago and I think it's very true because this is how Emma's always been around kids right even since the 80s with the Massachusetts Academy and everything with Kitty Pride, like this is just who Emma is and she just because she was coked out in the 80s in the Hellfire Club <laughs> doesn't mean she's not a she doesn't care for kids right when it comes to emma's past she was written by a cis white great man and she was created by that man to be a two-dimensional villain as a foil for xavier that is no longer the case we do have to give her a level of acceptance to go back and give her more nuance and she gets such a bad rap for similar things that we accept from i'm gonna just call him a counterpart the male counterpart which is Wolverine because when it comes to the two of them they are very similar and they've done very similar things you know a lot of the times 
she is on un- she is underestimated she is untrusted she is just abused and i'm not talking about in the books i'm talking about among fans of the x-men of the marvel books especially amongst queer fandom emma can do no wrong and there's a very easy understanding of how somebody can come off the way that she does externally while having a really complex moral center buried beneath a you know a hard diamond exterior i think it's something that you know queer fans can really understand and i'm not saying that other fans can i believe a lot of them can as well but we can I, we can yeah <laughs> exactly that has been a really huge contributor to her understanding in fandom but there is a degree to which there's certain parts of fandom and certain parts of all of us i think that see characters and whatever they were when they came in that's their default and that's what's their that's what they will always at some point return to always at some point some writer is going to say no magneto is the guy from the 60s who wanted to kill all humans and take the world for mutants and no matter what he does with professor xavier with cyclops utopia wherever we are eventually somebody's going to come in and say i want to take magneto back to being a villain and yeah there's a pretty good chance they'll get that opportunity the same is ultimately true with emma and it's happened a few times and it always turns out that she's actually doing it for the greater good or you know she might do things that we would find morally questionable but she was doing it to make sure that the mutants were safe it's a tough interplay because it has to do with more than just our understanding of emma through her background it also has to do with things like editorial fiat and the will of a writer whose concept of emma might be kind of different from our own right i absolutely agree with that claremont's writing was prolific you know he he gave us emma i will always be grateful for that but he gave us the white queen who is just a villain and i think that we need to remember that it's okay for for us to give characters more backstory and develop them for the most part emma has gotten a much better deal than a lot of people and while of course i think we do see fans that can't really look past the character development from my experience and it might be because i surround myself primarily with queer fans um i don't see as much of that i see a lot of support for emma and you know a book like this which is so willing to do a deep dive into her past and really show us the benevolent angle while also showing us you know when this all started she was working for the fucking kingpin like she was not innocent she was very morally ambiguous but that heart was always there you know let's say dean's stands are not the best ms stands maybe yeah (laughs) and speaking of that i think it's very cool that we saw an emma frost story where she takes center stage and she is not revolving around scott summer's life yep yep i think that's a fantastic point that's not not scott or gene we saw them like in a few panels in number one yep and it but it's just not about them i want i think that's an incredibly good point it's a really important one some of emma frost's most important character building moments have to do with scott and g and it does get old it absolutely gets old and that's why i've been really enjoying the current era because it has uh, effectively while she is still connected to them it has effectively separated her enough so she can be fully autonomous yeah she's had great moments without them she's had a few with them too which i've always appreciated but i always have a sort of eyebrow like even a moment like x-men 7 where she and scott are just leaning against you know while he's naked anyway um (laughs) those moments 
I'm like, okay, this is really cool, but let's not do a thing. And so far we have not done a thing. It's been very like, she's there. They know each other. They're friends. I think they're all screwing, but whatever. But she's, yeah, I mean, she's in an inferno by herself doing her own thing. Not sort of like going to Jean being like, I need help from you because you're so powerful. Right. We see just how capable she is constantly in this era. So I mean- this is really the capstone that. This, you know, Devil's Reign. I mean, to me, this was even more than the ending with Wilson. This was like the just OP Emma fantasy where it's just like, (laughs) this has gone off the rails. Like, it doesn't matter that I don't really buy that this is how it would go down and that nobody would be the least bit prepared and that she would just take over the situation. Like, do I believe she's that powerful? Yes. I don't believe that everybody else is that big a screw up, but it's funny as fuck. And (laughs) yeah, yeah, it was was hilarious. I I think it was really (laughs) just meant to be humor yeah with with that little you know political jab at the yeah. same time but i cannot get over bear mace party <laughs> i am so obsessed with that i've been shouting that every so often for the rest <laughs> of the week i love it so much i think that what really helped show those scenes like really funny was uh phil notice expressions yeah i mean the yes. police like yeah emma's doing that little lip bite and yep. the police just staring all with the same face i think that was really funny Yep. Give a little kisses to the police dogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We haven't really talked about Isabel, by the way. We haven't. And, you know, I'll be honest. It's because I felt like Isabel was a little bit of a MacGuffin. Not yeah. one of this issue's strongest points. She um, was absolutely a MacGuffin. I, again, like all this, this is three issues and I want 15 more. I would love to see Isabel come back. I would love to see, you know, Isabel, Electra, and Emma Frost all interacting again. I would love to see that interplay as it is against Wilson Fisk. Isabel and Electra could be having a whole thing right now with Electra's arc in Woman without fear and devil's reign and the upcoming daredevil series i see nothing but potential here but for this isabel kind of just needed to show up and either tell us one way or the other like do you hate emma and is that a thing or are you okay with emma and here we are now we're moving on to the next part of the story this is sort of what happened with fisk at the end is that electra and it's gonna be written by another editorial group another writer and all that so i mean this is just what nico said earlier that this might be another promise that possible to fill right yeah absolutely because you, you said it i mean electra's been having this very incredible arc in daredevil and devil's reign where she's actually you know training another young girl and why was this never mentioned and I don't know this just sort of feels not fan fiction-y but out of place I think that's a word I mean like I would love to see Isabel become Electra since Electra is currently Daredevil this is a great introduction to a character she could go anywhere from here I suspect she will not go anywhere which you know is why I kind of didn't even really bother to bring her up that much if I knew we were getting like Electra number one starring her training Isabel we would be talking a lot more about her but because i don't see that much happening with her she does feel just like a MacGuffin to me i do agree with you partly but i just feel like i've seen uh duggan in the grand scheme of things when it comes to his books do i think that she's gonna be something bigger outside of that that i have no idea it really depends on you know how she resonates with fans and how she resonates with other writers i think i mean i would love to see i hope you're right and and you do make a great point duggan does plan 
plant seeds and, you know, he's given enough time on books and enough control that he is actually able to, you know, reap the benefits of what he has planted. I would love to see that for Isabel. She's yeah. a really cool character. This look is really great. I'd love to see a woman of color who can kick ass. She's not a mutant, right? No, she is no, not a mutant. No, no, uh, Emma does reference the fact that it would be very difficult. Right. Uh, right. So I, I took it that way. Yeah. Um, I was kind of wondering if it was, it would be difficult because of the political stuff with Fisk, but she would be welcome because she was, I was curious about that. I always say like, I want to see the contingent of humans that are allowed on Krakoa for various reasons, you know, like Kyle, I would love to see that be a larger population and what a great character to add to the mix. One of the things that we're pointing to, and again, it's a very interesting thing about this issue. There is from the tiniest sliver of like one character's perspective to the broad, what is going on in Krakoa and what is Krakoan culture? There is room for so much more story to be told. And, you know, eventually you just, there's a limit to how much they're going to publish and what will sell and what writers want to do. There's room for these stories. We're just, unfortunately, there's not enough pages in the world to tell all the stories that we want to about what's going on in the mutants' lives. And we miss stuff. And, you know, I think sometimes they make the wrong choice on what to cover versus what to kind of leave unsaid and get warped. But, you know, on the flip side of it, we get this amazing Emma Frost story, which I just loved and will cherish for years to come. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Full on, full on agree. I, I, I will admit to you guys, I have not read the other books just yet. Uh, oh, I, Devil's Rain? yes. So I actually have just this as my perspective into the story. So I actually, I have been interested in reading the rest of it. I just haven't really gotten around to it because it's a lot to read. Both stories are great, just the connection feels tenuous at best, and the ramifications are basically none. Yeah, I mean, the right. book's not bad, it's just what TK said, that doesn't really matter to what's actually happening in the event. Unless Emma really shows up in, you know, the final issues of Devil's Reign, or in another tie-in, having come off of this and been like, here's what we can do, yeah. this will really There's only like been... two more issues left, I think right. number six and the Omega issue. Yeah. Like the, so so yeah. I don't, you know, it, it, it's fantastic. Fantastic, even don't get me wrong, but where you are right now is is okay. Okay, I accept. It's yeah. uh, I I was a little curious only because it specifically says at the end of the issue, not the end. Well, I and I think that has to do with what Emma said about coming after Fisk, and I'm not sure if that's like a you never know where a Marvel story could go, or if there are concrete plans. I'm hoping there are concrete plans because man, Kingpin versus White Queen, 24 issues. I'm I'm there. Agreed. Like I literally cannot think of anything I would rather read more involving Emma Frost at this moment because this set up such a fantastic story and again I still think that even though it was a misnomer I think this book was a very good way to to, uh, show that she can have a freaking solo series yeah 